Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, please. Chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Next week we will uh, go back to Hebrews. We will begin in chapter 8. We left off at the end of chapter 7. We want to hear about the new covenant. That begins in chapter 8 in Hebrews. So that again will start next week. But for now, this will be the last series of the holiday messages. We've been in uh, the Gospel of Luke the last couple weeks, uh, heading into Christmas. Actually, I think the last three weeks. And then uh, today we're going to be in the Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Well, as you're finding your way there, once again we are counting down our days to another year. It seems, I don't know, is it just me, but it seems like the older I get, the faster they go. On Monday night, or uh, yeah, I guess it'll be Monday night, right? Hundreds of millions of people will be watching a crystal ball drop uh, from New Year's Times Square, celebrating the beginning of New Year. Uh, Cindy and I will probably be fast asleep, because that's uh, as we get older, I, 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 tre- I treasure the sleep more than I do watching the crystal ball go down. It's like, uh, I'll check it on YouTube. Okay. And with the coming year, uh, the coming of a new year, will inevitably bring forth another batch of resolutions to ensure that we all get our lives back on track. The number one resolution each year is, guessing, guessing, ah, uh, good. That's right, losing weight. <clears throat> You might have noticed the not-so-subtle increase in health club memberships that are flooding your emails, fitness equipment, dietary aids in the last few weeks. It's all over the TV. It's all over social media. It's all over the Internet. Uh, and that increase in promotions is tied directly to our most frequently giving and least likely to be followed through with upon resolution. Now, I believe a resolution should actually be defined as the promise we make with the full intention of following through 100%, and it receives only about 10% of our attention after January 10th. That's my definition of a resolution. Yeah, yeah. Now, even the church has gotten into the act. Now, we don't call them New Year's resolutions, but we do give the state of the church address that often is filled with just as many fully intentioned plans They receive only diminishing action past January. But what should the priority be for the church? What should be our resolution? That's what we want to ask ourselves today. For some, it's a new building fund or perhaps a renewed emphasis on discipleship or even evangelism. And as your pastor, I spent a lot of time thinking about and praying about where to lead you next. Matter of fact, we have multiple meetings this week with the elders, uh, again, digging into where God is leading us. What area of our walk needs our prayerful attention? What area of our walk needs more teaching and preaching uh, focus so that we'll continue to grow spiritually and seek the Lord's will? These are the kind of thoughts that keep me awake a night as your pastor. Where are we at? Where should we be? What are the stumbling blocks in place right now? What does God's word have to say about those? How should we be applying those to our lives? I look around me and I see savage wolves attacking the flock at every opportunity in subtle, very subtle ways. I see a world that diminishes Christianity at every opportunity and marginalizes our beliefs as intolerant, narrow-minded, and bigoted. There are attacks 
from atheists, attacks from skeptics, attacks from academia, attacks from friends and family. There are competing worldviews that are touted as the same as Christianity or Christianity Plus or New Age Spirituality. Some sort of new and improved religion. I see the church today in a constant state of physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual warfare. What should the priority be when the church is under attack? Where should our focus be in 2019 while we stand firm against this barrage of assaults? And for those of you who have read your Bibles all the way to the end, it's not going to get better. It's only going to increase. The question is, where will our hearts be during the, this process? We know how the story ends. We know the things that are going to occur in the future. We don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It could be this coming year. This might be the year. But we know that they will come. Where will our hearts be? We have only one resolution in 2019 at PBC, and that is the proclamation and propagation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our priority is to proclaim and live the gospel like we've never done before. Despite the resistance, despite the persecution, despite the temptations, despite the trials, our mission has never been clear. We have an unchanging resolution at PBC, and that unchanging resolution is the same every year until the Lord returns, and it's called the gospel. That is our unchanging resolution. We are to proclaim it. We are to propagate it. We are to give it and live it in 2019 and beyond until the Lord returns. Somebody say amen. Amen. Why is this the unchanging resolution? Because there's no greater truth. There's no greater mission for us in the church today. This is is in fact the singular focus on the gospel was the entire subject of the epistle to the Galatians by the Apostle Paul. They were under assault. They were under a barrage of competing worldviews. They were tempted to veer off course and return to a system that could only produce death. The message Paul gives to the Galatians is just as applicable to us today as it was for them in the first century. And that will be the focus of our study this morning in Galatians. The unchanging resolution. The gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for your wonderful truth. Lord, it's so easy for us to get off course, to try to fix things in a man-made way, to try to follow everybody else in competing worldviews, to think we're in competition. Lord, it's so easy for us to get sucked into those things and not even realize it. They're so subtle, so deceptive. But your word is clear, crystal clear. We don't need a new resolution every year. We have one, and it's the same every year until you return. Help us to see that today, Lord, in this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you a little background about the uh, epistle to the Galatians. The Apostle Paul, as you know, is a church planning missionary. After he uh, would plant a church, he'd move on to the next God-directed region, and he'd follow up with those churches that he planted through letters. 
One of those letters is the Epistle to the Galatians, which is written to the churches that Paul planted in southern Galatia. They would include uh, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia. The epistle was written around A.D. 50, shortly after the Jerusalem Council, which was in A.D. 49. The congregations he was writing to were mixed congregations of both Jews and Gentiles who were now being infiltrated by a group called the Judaizers. That's who was doing The Judaizers, who were they? They were teaching that both salvation and sanctification, that is how we grow in Christ, were only possible by adding works to the law, works of the law to the grace of Christ. They wanted to add in. You could be saved, but you still got to do all the ceremonies, all the rituals. You still need to do all of those things under the law in the Old Testament. If you're truly saved, that's great that you, you've surrendered your life to Christ. It's great that, that he's the Messiah. But don't forget, we still need to be doing these other things too to really be saved. And Paul responds not with instructions, but with the gospel. That's how he responds. Now, one of the most frequently used phrases in Christian circles is the gospel. Amazingly, few adults actually know what this means. It could either refer to the literal translation, which it means good news, or to that perspective that salvation is available only through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that a person's acceptance of Christ as their Savior through faith. Less than four out of ten adults knew this. That's about 34%. Only 34% could tell you what the gospel is. That means, if my math is correct, 66 or nearly two-thirds of those people who identify themselves as Christians have no idea what the gospel is. Others had an inaccurate perception of the meaning of the term. Three out of ten of all, uh, adults didn't even offer a guess. I have no idea what the gospel is. Even among born-again Christians, only 60% correctly identified at least one meaning of the expression. Only 60% even knew that it had. They might have had the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but didn't have the resurrection as the part of the gospel. It's common among Christian circles to assume the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. And often Christians... See, the gospel is just a set of basic ABC doctrines that are the way in which someone is saved. We assume that once we've been saved, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. What we need is more advanced material. But this seems to fly in the face of the rest of Paul's letters. Remember in Romans 1, verse 15, a matter of fact, Brother Jake preached about this very same thing. Paul is writing a letter to believers in Rome. And he says, I make known to you the gospel which you believed, past tense. And then he then restates the gospel before showing them how the gospel will then apply to how they should live out their lives, specifically the rest of their life. You see, the gospel is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey. He does the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I make known to you the gospel which you believed. Incidentally, most of those he's speaking to came to salvation under the ministry of Paul. 
He's preaching to those in the church that he planted and pastored who came to faith under the ministry the Lord had given him. And he says, I, I make known to you the gospel which you believe. Then he restates the gospel to them again. He says, uh, and shows them how the gospel will then apply to how they should be living out their lives. But then, this is actually Paul's approach to a variety of other issues in 1 Corinthians. Whenever there's a problem in the church, he says, okay, there's a problem here. Let me share with you the gospel. Then let me show you how that gospel is applied to your life to fix this issue you have in your life. Again and again and again. Paul's letters, in fact, in almost all of his letters, he devotes the first portion to rehearsing the gospel truths with believers. Then he moves on to how those truths should be lived out in their lives. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3, gospel, gospel, gospel. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, how to live out that gospel. Colossians 1 and 2, gospel, gospel. 3 and 4, how to live it out. Romans 1 through 11, all gospel. Chapters 12 through 16, how to live out those truths. Re-preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to life is Paul's favorite method for ministering to us as believers. You see, that's the bombshell of truth that Paul is dropping on these churches in Galatia. The gospel is not only the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. This is why the gospel should never become old or worn out like a tired old song. You know, if the Apostle Paul felt so strongly about this, that he patterned that way of teaching for all Christians to model, then why do many of us check out every time we hear the gospel? Why do we just mentally just kind of move on like, yeah, yeah, I got that. I've known this for a long time. I told you once before, when I used to give the invitation at the end of a message, I could see where some in the congregation were checking out. And not only were they checking out, they, were, they wanted to let everybody else know in the congregation that that part of the message didn't appear to them. They gave me the zipper alarm, that's what I called it, when they would start zipping up their Bibles while I was giving the invitation. Emphatically, is almost as if to say, this part of the message is for the rest of you. I don't need to hear this part again. But let me ask you, what is the message we're sending to those new believers seated among us if we send this message that we don't need the gospel anymore when we hear it? Even worse, what message are we sending to the unsaved seated among us when we minimize it? Now, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but to challenge you on what may be a prideful response to the gospel. Perhaps what we should be doing when the gospel is preached and an invitation and given is praying. Praying in thanksgiving for having been given the grace to accept the message of salvation. Praying in supplication for God to prick your conscience in the areas of your life where you're not living out the gospel each day as you should. Praying in intercession for those who may be seated among you, who may be searching for the same answers that you, by God's grace, have been so divinely and been enabled to receive. And I see that too. I see many of you, when the gospel is given, immediately go to prayer. Praying that 
that the gospel message will penetrate their hearts as it did yours many years ago. And praying that they'll come to know and love Jesus the way you know and love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the right response when we hear the gospel. In the last 30 years, there's been a proliferation of new gospels in the United States. Some, such as the New Age belief system, are rooted in Eastern mysticism or Hinduism. Others are more pop psychology than they are the gospel. But whatever their origin, they are misdirecting men and women away from the only truth that can save you from your sins. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Hopefully by now you have found your place in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Let's look at that, shall we? Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, he says, which is really not another gospel, only there are some who are destroyed disturbing you, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The core of this letter is that the people of Galatia have been turned from the life-changing truth of God's word. Notice in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. That word marvel, thamatso, is he is astounded. He is bewildered beyond belief that they would go back to something that could only produce death after hearing the gospel message. Matter of fact, if you read the epistles, you know how the beginning of this letter is so different than the other letters. When he goes to the Ephesians, it sounds like music should be playing in the background. Oh, I've missed you. I love you so much. I hear such great things. You know, even 1 Thessalonians is like that. 2 Thessalonians is like that. 1 and 2 Timothy are like that. You get to Galatians, it's like, I am bewildered. I am astonished that you would turn away from the true gospel to something else. It's done lovingly, but it's very pointed. I mean, you can't help but pick up the tone when you're reading it and how different it is from the other epistles. Paul's astonishment is not that false teachers exist, but that the church was following them. He had expected false teachers. In fact, he had warned the Ephesian elders that that would happen. He said, savage wolves will come in amongst you at my departure. What he's so surprised about is that the church was so easily misled. So in the four verses that we're going to look at today, the apostle gives four principles concerning the word of God, the gospel. And these we need to understand, beloved, so that we are not led astray. Here's the first one. The gospel doesn't need any additions. The gospel needs no additions. 
Note that these false teachers are not openly denying the gospel message. They only wanted to improve the gospel by adding things to it. Things like specific requirements or new ceremonies or new standards. It's as if they were saying, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we have something wonderful to add to it what you already believe. What is at least implied is that the faith that these believers have is not sufficient enough. They need to have something new and improved to it. And may I just warn you that all false teaching is like that. This is what the Word of God says, but you need to add these things on to truly be saved. Or you need to add these things on to truly walk with God. The gospel needs no additions. Who are we to think that we can add something to the Word of God? What they viewed as a different gospel was actually a distorted gospel. That word translated distort means to transform into something that's the opposite of what it is. He goes on to verse 7, as I read earlier, to clarify that by saying, which is really not another only there are some who who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The New Living Translation renders these verses this way. I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who in his love and mercy called you to share the eternal life he gives through Christ. You are already following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who twist and change the truth concerning Christ. That's a pretty accurate, believe it or not, I don't always say that about the New Living Translation, but that's pretty accurate on what these verses mean and what they're saying. Paul says that this new gospel or good news is in reality not the gospel and not good news. It's a counterfeit. In verses 6 and 7, he uses two different words, and I, I covered this in, in Hebrews, right? Heteros, meaning different, you know, they're the same, but different, male and female, right? Heterosexual, male and female, right? They're the same, we're both humans, but we're different. And then alos, the same, of the same kind, same kind. Not only does the gospel not need any addition? Here's the second thing. Distorting the gospel is serious business. Distorting the gospel is serious business. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be a curse. Paul invokes a curse on anyone, himself included, who distorts the gospel. And then in verse 9, he repeats that for emphasis. In case you didn't just get what he just said, he repeats the same thing again in the very next verse. Paul is saying that the real problem of another gospel is not only that it's a bad idea and that it lacks any power and it's a fake, but that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. In our sensitive English language, we lose some of the heat in this verse that's in the original language. Paul is a fiery kind of guy. and You can feel the heat coming off of what he's saying. That these are people he loves. Said, you are messing around with fire. You're jumping around the flames in a gasoline suit. 
You don't even know it. You don't even know it. Verse 8, if anyone comes with another gospel, let him be devoted to destruction. Verse 9, he continues, as, and if you believe it, you will be devoted to destruction too. These individuals will be devoted to destruction, separated from God, eternally punished. Those who distort the gospel message are rejecting the authority of Christ and are therefore cursed, anathema. And Paul's not talking about church discipline. His language is far stronger than that. He is talking about God's final damnation and wrath on people who distort the gospel. Many of you remember uh, David Koresh in Waco, Texas. Remember that in the mid-90s, some of you? I fear that those who follow David Koresh in that compound in Waco, Texas to their fiery deaths or the follower of Marshall Applewhite's Heaven's Gate cult in 1997 took their own lives in a twisted attempt to connect with extraterrestrial beings who were hidden in the wake of the Haley-Bopp comet will not find themselves excused because of their sincerity. And those who led them into that error will bear an even greater judgment. One modern distortion of the gospel is preached in order to fit Christianity in a materialistic society. The message of that gospel is, which we can call the gospel of success or the prosperity gospel, is based on the premise that God wants to bless you, therefore you can only expect good things from him if you follow him. And if you follow him, then he will reward you with material blessings. The problem with this gospel is that it ignores the fact that in Christian life there is sorrow and there is suffering, and there is death. And the key of the gospel of Jesus is not the avoidance of life events, but the possibility to overcome them. And so the gospel doesn't need any additions. Secondly, distorting the gospel is serious business, but also, thirdly, only the gospel saves. Back in verse 4, Paul reminds the believer that it was Christ who gave himself for our sins. As Christians in America, we believe in the freedom of religion, but Christians need to realize that does not make all religions equally true. While we defend the right of each individual in this country to worship as they choose, in so doing, we are not defending that all religions are also the truth. Or clearly they are not. The words of Jesus grant this elusive claim, and it's very exclusive. Only faith in him. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many come to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. The writer of Acts reiterates that thought when he said in Acts 4, 12. This is uh, Luke. Nor is there salvation in any other. For no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's very clear, is it not? So the gospel doesn't need any additions. Secondly, distorting the gospel is very serious business. Thirdly, only the gospel saves. And fourthly, only the gospel produces real life change. The strongest argument for the gospel of Christ 
is the personal testimony of someone whose life has been changed by it. Charles Bradlaugh was an avowed atheist, once challenged by the Reverend H.P. Hughes in a debate. The preacher, who was the head of a rescue mission in London, England, accepted the challenge with the condition that he could bring with him 100 men and women who would tell what had happened in their life since trusting Christ as their Savior. The atheist wanted him to prove his Christianity, to defend the gospel. He said, I'll do it, but only if I can bring 100 men and women who will give testimony to their, the transformation that has occurred in their life since surrendering their life to Christ. They would be people who once lived in deep sin. Some had come from poverty-stricken homes caused by the vices of their parents. Hughes said they would not only tell of their conversion, but would submit to cross-examination to any who doubted their stories. Furthermore, the pastor invited his opponent to bring as many non-believers as he wanted who would tell how they were helped by their lack of faith. When the appointed day arrived, the preacher came, accompanied by 100 transformed persons. But Bradlaugh never showed up. The result? The meeting turned into a testimony time, and many sinners who had gathered to hear the scheduled debate came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. When we lose the gospel of grace, beloved, we lose the only message that has the power to heal us. We witness the power of the gospel in the story of the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Remember that? The demon-possessed man experienced many horrors at the hands of his neighbors, family, and friends in their attempt to deliver him from the demons who possessed him. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 29, states that they had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. In spite of all their attempts to cure him, he was no better off. Multiple attempts had obviously been made at deliverance, but had all failed. But one encounter with Jesus brought deliverance and sanity. And when the townspeople investigated what had happened, we are told in verse 35, they found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. There were no chains. He was no longer screaming in an attempt to hurt himself. He was not sedated. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That is what we lose when we lose the gospel. The power that only the gospel possesses to transform lives. We could spend the rest of this afternoon all the way up to praise and testimony sharing if we went around this room and you shared your gospel story of how God has changed your life, what, track, what your life was like before salvation, what, it, what your salvation was like, and what your life looks like afterwards. And in each one of those, you would see how the gospel, how God's gospel change and is changing our lives today. Finally, back in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells the reader why he's saying these things. 
He's not saying them to be sensational. He's not saying these things as some preachers do because he knows it's a good, safe topic and he can count on some hearty amens. He's saying them because there's only one truth in the gospel message that Jesus Christ came and died for men's sins is the only truth. Beloved, the unchanging resolution for Portage Bible Church in 2019 is the same as it is every year. It is the gospel. The gospel that needs no additions. The gospel that is serious business if you try to distort it. The gospel that can save men from their sins and the gospel that transforms people's lives. This is why it is our unchanging resolution in 2019 and beyond. We will continue to preach and propagate the gospel. We will continue to give the gospel. We will continue to live the gospel as long as I'm your pastor. And as the day of the Lord approaches, we will give it and live it even more. There can be no compromise on the most important message the world could ever hear. We needed the gospel then, we need it today, and we need it tomorrow. We need the gospel every day. It's not just the ABCs of what it means to be the Christian. It is the A to Z of what it means to be a Christian. So in 2019 and beyond, give the gospel live the gospel. You realize that for some people, the way you live your life is the only gospel they'll ever hear. Do you know that? They'll be reading you and your life because they won't pick up a Bible to save their life. You will be the gospel. And through your actions, hopefully, by God's grace, they too will spend eternal life with Christ. Oh, beloved, let us not lose sight. These attacks, these distortions on the gospel will only increase every year. But we here in this body of believers that the Lord has assembled, we will not waver. We will not distort the gospel. We will not believe in a modified version of it. Whether that grows us tenfold or not at all, is of little consequence. But we will be faithful to the true gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, it, it sickens my heart when I hear of the distortions that are going around and around and around this country and even in our own community these distortions of the gospel, this belief that you just believe it once and then don't need to live it, this belief of that we can change the gospel somehow or add to it or subtract things from it. Lord, there is no other means by which men can be saved. Your word is very clear. There is no other way. There is no other truth. Father, that message, that exclusive message doesn't resonate in a world that wants to include everybody. But Lord, you understood that long ago. You knew how our hearts would be tempted 
to not swim upstream, to take the easier path, to take the wider path, not the narrow path. But your word is also very clear that those who do pursue the wide path, that's the path that leads to destruction. But the narrow path, the more difficult path, the path that you have commanded us to follow, Lord, that path is the path that leads to eternal life. May we not waver as a body of Christ in this coming year and beyond, regardless of the consequences. May we stand true and firm in your word and trust in you. Help us to do that, Lord. May that be our only resolution, and may we stick to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.